Where can you turn in the Bible to discover the gospel? Well, this may not be your first answer, but you could turn to Isaiah. The prophecy of Christ's suffering and death for your sin should humble you. It's a revelation of Jesus' love and commitment to the Father and to you. It calls you to live as his servant in humble, faithful submission to him. This is The Wisdom Journey, and Stephen called this lesson the Gospel of Christ in Isaiah. On our wisdom journey through Isaiah, we now arrive at chapters 52 and 53. Uh, These two chapters have been called by one particular author, the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. I would agree. This is actually a lengthy poem, and we're going to let this song, this poem, do most of the talking. It's going to predict in a a rather moving way, some of what the Messiah will experience as he suffers for our salvation. Beloved, this is this here is sacred ground. This is a description not only of what the Messiah experienced, but what the Messiah actually felt as he suffered and died. Here in chapter 52 in verse 14, we read, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Well, this describes the result of his beatings he received before being crucified. It all started with the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, pummeling him with their fists, mocking him, saying, hey, tell us, tell us who hit you, having blindfolded him. It continues with the scourging he suffers from the Roman soldiers. That scourging, by the way, was called by historians the half-death, because that whipping left the victim half-dead. Jesus' beatings literally disfigured his appearance, as Isaiah prophesies here, beyond human recognition. But did you notice Isaiah saying here that he shall sprinkle many nations? You can translate that Hebrew verb, one of two ways. It can mean to startle, and this would refer to the appearance of Jesus so marred that no one would consider him a candidate for being Israel's Messiah king. That'd be too startling. But you could also translate this verb, as it is here in my English standard version, to sprinkle. This would be a reference to the priestly function of sprinkling sacrificial blood on the altar for the cleansing of sin. Leviticus 17. His blood was splattered then, so to speak, sprinkled for our cleansing. Now, verse 15 says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. In other words, when they understand the meaning of his death, they're going to be dumbfounded. They're going to be speechless. Now, Here in chapter 53, Isaiah puts a question in the mouths of those who've heard the gospel concerning the Messiah. They ask here in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is prophesying here that not many in Israel are going to believe in him. Very few in Israel are going to come to that cross 
on his crucifixion day and put their trust in Jesus. Well, why not? Well, verse 2 explains here. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah is making it very clear that there was nothing special about Jesus physically, nothing to cause people to think, wow, he must be God in the flesh, not even close. He he had no beauty that anybody would envy him or promote him. Don't miss this. While he remained in glory prior to his incarnation, God the Son had the divine ability to literally choose what kind of man he'd look like. Now, I'd guess that if you and I had that ability, we would probably arrange it so that we'd end up being rather good-looking. Ladies, you'd probably stop traffic. You'd be so beautiful. Men, you'd be so handsome. Everybody would want to know you. We're told here that God the Son arranged to look like an unimpressive Man, Quite literally here, you could read it, that he chose to be an unattractive man. Why did Jesus go through with with any of this humility? All of it was humbling as he became a member of the human race. Why did he do it? Well, verse 4 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, to make sure that there's no thought that anyone might have peace or spiritual healing apart from this suffering Messiah, Isaiah says this in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, here in the strongest terms possible, the Messiah's prophesied death is described as substitutionary. That is, he is giving his life for our lives. Because of his grace and mercy, the piercing, crushing chastisement that should have been ours was placed upon him. So the only way that you can have peace with God and forgiveness for your sins is to trust in his work alone on your behalf. And let me tell you, to try to add your own efforts to his work on the cross, well, that's nothing less than an insult to what he did for you and for me. That would be like picking up a paintbrush and walking over to the Mona Lisa And telling Leonardo da Vinci, you know, would you just sort of step aside here and and let me improve on your masterpiece? Jesus Christ, by the way, as he hung on that cross for you and me, refused to defend himself, to save himself. He chose to die for you and for me. And in doing so, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah to the letter. Listen to verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We read in verse 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. That's another way of saying the death of Jesus was not an accident. It wasn't misguided. It was the will of the Father that his son voluntarily laid down his life as a substitute for us. Now, verse 10 goes on to speak of Christ's vindication. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Well, his offspring are those who've placed their faith in him. The Old Testament believer looked forward to the cross. We here in the New Testament era look back to the cross, knowing we are forgiven freely because Jesus paid it all. Heaven is free to you today, my friend, because Jesus made the payment for your sin and mine. In fact, Isaiah writes here in verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. You know, the wonderful truth here isn't isn't just that Jesus died. As one author said, well, that's simply a fact of history. That's like saying Abraham Lincoln died. Listen, the glorious truth of the gospel is that it's personal. Jesus died for you, for your sins, and for mine. Beloved, our Lord Jesus was punished in our place. When he hung on the cross just before dying, he cried out, it is finished, John 19, verse 30. That's one word in the Greek New Testament. It's the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. You know, if you were sent to jail in the first century for stealing, the jailer would have written your crime on a parchment, stealing, along with the length of your sentence. Now, at the end of six months or so, after you finished serving your sentence, the jailer would write across that same piece of parchment one word, tetelestai. He'd then hand you that parchment so that you would have it to show as proof that you had paid in full for your crime. That's the word Jesus cried out as he died, paid in full. Jesus paid in full for your crimes and mine. Every sinful deed, every evil thought, you and I can now be offered forgiveness. We can be taken to heaven one day free of charge because Jesus paid the price. Let me ask you this. Have you placed your trust in him what he did for you? Have you admitted that you're a sinner and you need him to save you, which is why he came to earth? Well, you can do that right now, wherever you are. You can accept him now and ask him to become your Lord and your Savior. He died for you. Ask him to become your Savior today. Well, until our next wisdom journey, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. I'm glad you were able to join us today for this lesson of the Wisdom Journey. Stephen is taking you through the Bible with a new lesson each weekday. We have a gift for you this month. Questions abound regarding the future events that theologians have called the Great Tribulation. You've likely wondered some of these same things. Will it last for three and one-half years or seven years? Is it figurative or literal? Will Christians suffer through it or be spared from it? 
Stephen has taught extensively on future events from the Book of Revelation, and we have a resource from that series that we want to send you as our gift. In this booklet, Stephen explores the tribulation from Scripture. He lays out the most biblically consistent and logical answers to help you understand this coming period. This is a free resource called the Coming Tribulation. All you need to do is complete a simple form, and we'll send it to your inbox right away. Visit wisdomonline.org right now. There's a link right on that page that will direct you. We also post each day's broadcast, so if you ever miss one of these lessons, you can go to our website and keep caught up with our daily Bible teaching ministry. You'll find each day's broadcast right on our homepage. Do that and then join us again on the Wisdom Journey.